Justin John O'Dean is a 27-year-old man from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And he may have done his anger management homework, but apparently he didn't learn his lesson. You see, he was um, he pleaded guilty to fifth-degree assault charges when he violently lost his temper. And the irony of it all is that he was on his way to anger management class when he committed the crime. According to the criminal complaint filed at the time, Odin was waiting at a bus stop when uh, he began to harass a 59-year-old woman. And witnesses say he was kind of yelling at her and saying things like, why don't you show me some respect? And she understandably felt frightened. She picked up her cell phone to call the police, and he punched her in the face. When a 63-year-old man tried to intervene, he took a blue folder in his hand, and he hit the man in the face with the blue folder, dropped it, left it behind, ran off. But the irony of it is, is that that blue folder held his anger management homework. And the police used it to track him down. Have you noticed that there is a lot of there are a lot of angry people, it seems like, in this world. A lot of there seems to be a lot of anger that we see around us. Uh, we usually only hear about anger in the news when it's something unusual or weird like this case of Justin John Odin. But we also hear it sometimes when it is sad and tragic, when somebody loses their temper or in a rage, hurts or maims or even kills somebody. But along with those cases in our everyday life, we see anger on a daily basis. Bosses frustrated and angry with employees and vice versa. Husbands and wives upset with each other. Children and parents kind of at odds, butting heads. Neighbors, classmates, whoever. We see anger on a daily basis. People getting angry at each other and often being hurt. And it leads to broken relationships. In some cases, relationships that are ended or changed forever. And we all know the feeling of being angry, don't you? I mean, we all know what it feels like to be really angry at somebody or have them angry at us. We, 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 we can feel the tension in the air or the room, and, and uh, it adds stress and a weight to things. Kind of A cloud kind of hangs over the situation, and we try to avoid each other, or we try to tiptoe around each other so as not to set each other off or make things worse. We understand anger. Your know, question this morning as we work our way through our sermon series, how does God feel about us? Is, is God angry with us? And we're doing this sermon series because how we feel that God feels about us is, is, is of paramount importance. Because how we feel that God feels about us, really it affects how we relate to God, how we think about God, how we understand God. It affects how we feel about ourselves and, and ultimately how we treat other people. Let me explain. Let's kind of draw a parallel, let's extrapolate this to the father or, or mother, uh, daughter-son relationship, parent-child relationship. For instance, if a child grows up in a home and, and they believe that mom and dad think they're a blessing, that they're wonderful, and they feel deeply loved by, that, by, the, by their parents, that's going to make a difference, isn't it? And how they feel about themselves and how they grow up, how they feel they can accomplish things, how they view themselves, how they view others. But on the other hand, if a child grows up in a home and, and they feel that mom and dad are chronically disappointed in them, that they're more often than not, they're upset or angry with them, and that in their list of priorities, they really don't matter much, well, that's going to leave a mark, too, on that child and their self-worth, their self-esteem as they grow into adulthood. So how does God feel about us? But maybe more importantly, or just as importantly, how do we feel that God feels about us? And so today we come to the question, is God angry with us? Now, it's easy to sometimes think that way, isn't it? That God's angry with us, right? We, um, because we know ourselves too well as human beings. We screw up, we mess up, we make mistakes. 
there's things about ourselves we don't like and it doesn't seem we, they ever, we ever change. We feel like screw-ups. And to, to quote Shakespeare, to err is human. We'd say, yeah, we get that. Another great theologian, air quotes here, Jimmy Buffett, once wrote in this great lyric, I'm a piece of work. I'm iron and lace. I'm shy. I'm right up in your face. I'm a sweetheart, genius, reckless jerk. Lord have mercy. I'm a piece of work. I'm a piece of work. I'm an angel's fiend, bathed in lavender and gasoline, scared, brave, shallow in an ink black well, lightly browned in the fires of hell. Wicked, holy, full-on fake, best known for my big mistake. I'm zen-wise, peaceful, gone berserk. Good God Almighty, what a piece of work. I'm the CEO of the mailroom clerks. Lord have mercy, I'm a piece of work. Have you ever felt that way? You know, I'm a piece of work. I'm a work in progress, but there's not much progress being made. I keep blowing it, keep messing up, and, and we begin to live under this cloud where we keep messing up and we begin to think that God is angry at us, or at least we feel that way, and... And then we, because we didn't want to make sure that God doesn't get more angry at us, we begin to fall into this performance mode where, where our relationship with God becomes a performance for him. Now, if we think God is more often than not angry with us, well, daily life isn't going to be much fun, is it? It's not going to be filled with much joy or, or much peace. But I want to tell you this morning that, that this whole picture of God being angry with his people, with his followers, well, it's a myth. Now, you might be thinking, okay, Doug, uh, wait a second. Doesn't the Bible talk about God's wrath and about his judgment? How can you say that God's not angry at us? I mean, the Bible's full of these wrath-like and angry-like stories. And I would say, you're right. The Bible does talk about God's wrath and judgment. And I would suggest to you that God's wrath and judgment are part of what makes God God. I mean, let me explain for a second. The Bible tells us that God is holy and just. He's righteous. And that means that he's 100% perfect and pure morally and ethically. And so he will always respond to sin and evil and injustice with wrath and judgment. Now hear me out. This is going to be kind of heavy for a little bit, but I'm going to end with some really good stuff, so stick with me. In the words of Spooky the Bandit, we've got a long ways to go and a short time to get there. Miroslav Volf, a Croatian theologian and also a professor at Yale University, used to reject the concept of God's wrath. He thought this concept of God's wrath was completely and totally unworthy of a God of love. But then his country experienced a brutal civil war. People committed atrocities, violent, awful acts against their neighbors and fellow countrymen. And in his book, Free of Charge, Wolf writes about this new understanding of the necessity, he says, of God's wrath. Listen to what he writes. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Many were brutalized beyond imagination. He says, as I looked at this, I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 10 days. He says, how should God react to such carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the blood, but instead affirming them? Shouldn't God fiercely be angry? And then he concludes, 
Though I used to complain about the indecency of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. In plain English, Wolf is saying that God never looks at evil, never looks at the sin in this world and says, oh, that isn't a big deal. It doesn't really matter. I can overlook that. Don't worry about it. That's not the God of the Bible who is holy and just and perfect. And it's not the God that we worship. God never cheers for the bad guys. He doesn't clap when the bad guys win. He never smiles at sin, never rejoices in evil, doesn't sit in heaven kind of shaking his head with a wry grin on his face. Oh, those silly humans. Boys will be boys after all. You see, the, this idea of the wrath of God is simply a statement that, that God always responds negatively to sin. But just because the wrath of God is part of who he is doesn't mean that God is angry with us. Let me explain. When we have put our hope and trust in Christ, Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us and promises us that his wrath is turned aside, that he is no longer angry. He is not angry with us. Now, I think it would be helpful for us just to briefly look at what the Bible tells us about this idea of God's wrath, and, and that, I believe, will help us to properly understand how God truly does feel about us. So here are three core truths from the Bible about the wrath of God. Two of them are really heavy, really sobering, but the last one is really miraculous and wonderful. The first one is this. God's wrath is always chosen by those who receive it. That might seem a little strange, but let's think about this. God's wrath is always chosen by those who receive it. Uh, In the Bible, in John chapter 3, I'm going to read a couple verses for you from 18 through 21. But as you turn there or follow along the screen, you'll probably recognize John chapter 3 as home to perhaps the best known and greatest verse in the Bible, John 3.16. Remember the context? Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And a man who's come to him asking questions about spirituality. Who are you? What's this about? How can I be born again? And Jesus, one of the things Jesus says to him is in John 3, 16. You know, uh, for God so loved the world that he, uh, he, he sent his only son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. A wonderful verse about God's love and offer of grace and forgiveness. But then just a couple of verses later, Jesus says this. In verse 18, whoever believes in him, talking about himself, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. In other words, those who are condemned and receive God's wrath and judgment, they have chosen it because they have chosen not to believe in Jesus Christ. Verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And all those who do evil hate the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But those who live by the truth come into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying it's it's like a person who's in the darkness and they see the light. They peer through the darkness, they see the light shining, and they look at the light and say, I don't want to go in that direction. I'm not going to head that way. In fact, I don't want anything to do with the light. I'm going to reject it. And Jesus himself called himself the light of the world. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, wrote this, The unbeliever has preferred to be by himself without God, having God against him. And in the end, he shall have his preference. The actions of God in, in his wrath, biblically speaking, is to give people what they choose, to, to give them what they want, in a sense, and all its implications, nothing more and nothing less. 
So, so you see, the first core truth about God's wrath is that God's wrath is, is always chosen by those who receive it. We have free will in this world. And if we choose to live our life apart from Christ in this life, we will do so in the next. The second core truth about God's wrath is that, secondly, the wrath of God is always judicial. In other words, it's not personal. It's handed out in the courtroom, not in the, in the living room, so to speak. Romans 2, 5 through 6 says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay everyone according to what they have done. So this is a picture of the sovereign judge of the universe sitting in his courtroom looking at a person's life and saying, did they, did they move towards the light? Did they accept Jesus Christ? Did they accept him or did they reject him? And God then judges and hands out judgment accordingly. But God's judgment, again, is not personal. It's not impulsive. It's not arbitrary. He doesn't come home from, from work and kick the dog and yell at the wife and kids. And that brings us to the third core truth about God's wrath, and this is the, the wonderful one. God's wrath has been turned away from those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate. An advocate is like a lawyer in a courtroom. An advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And the, and the word that... that um, that is used here in the original Greek, which is what First John was written in, there's a singular word for the phrase atoning sacrifice, and it's a theological word called a propitiation, which is an unusual-sounding word with an unusual blessing. And it simply means that God's wrath has been turned away from us and directed toward his Son on the cross. And so when Christ died on the cross, he took all of God's anger and wrath regarding sin and evil and injustice and took it upon himself. And we, in turn, get this wonderful exchange where we get salvation and freedom and grace through Jesus Christ. Author Henry Nouwen tells a story about a family in Paraguay, and the father was a local doctor who spoke out against the, uh, the atrocities, human rights atrocities of the local regime. And the local police, of course, didn't like that, so they arrested his teenage son, threw him in jail, tortured him, and eventually killed him. The people of the town were so enraged they wanted to turn his funeral into this huge protest with the doctor. The father had different ideas. The funeral, at the funeral, the father displayed his son's body as he'd found him, naked, scarred, burned, badly beaten, and bruised, lying on the blood-soaked mattress from the prison cell. It was the strongest protest imaginable, for it put injustice and evil and wickedness and sin on display for everybody to see. I mean, isn't that what God did for us on Calvary when we think about it? The cross that held Jesus' body was, Jesus was naked, he was, he was scarred, he was bleeding, he was beaten. And it showed all the violence, all the sin, all the evil of this world. He took what we deserved and he took it upon himself. And on the cross, we also see a God of sacrificial, incredible love, whose anger was turned away, focused on Jesus for the sins of the world. In exchange, he offers us grace and mercy and love. And because he did, we are blessed, we are loved, we are forgiven, and God is not angry at us. Mary Without shares a story on her blog about growing up. She writes, 
My dad used to keep a coin jar on his dresser, and every night when he came home, he would go upstairs first thing to change clothes, and you would hear him pull the coins out of his pocket and put it in that coin jar. She says, when I was nine years old, I decided that his coins should be mine, so I began to pilfer nickels and pennies, and before I knew it, I had successfully swindled my dad, and he never knew about it. Sometime later, guilt trip gripped me. She says, I knew that what I had done was wrong. It could only be called stealing, and I had no explanation for my behavior, so... I penned an apology to him, I confessed my sin, and I asked my father to forgive me. I put it under the coin jar with a handful of pennies and waited for him to confront me. But he didn't say anything. And one day led to another, and eventually, she says, I forgot about the note. And then one day, she writes, my father stepped into my bedroom and said, Marion, I got your note and your pennies. And she says, my heart began to pound, and it felt like I had a marble lodged in my throat. I was expecting punishment, but he seemed to be on the verge of tears. I didn't understand that. I mean, he, I had wronged him, and uh, he had every right to be mad and punish me, but instead he said, thank you. And he gave me a hug, and he left the room, and we never spoke of it again. She says, I stood there dumbfounded. Why, when I fully deserved and expected my father's wrath, did he instead show me mercy? I didn't deserve it. I hadn't earned it. I felt like a criminal who had got off scot-free. But she writes, that was my first powerful lesson on judgment and grace, and I have never, ever forgotten what grace feels like. She says it's, it's like waiting for the other shoe to drop, but it never, ever does. It's, it's experiencing utter relief and humility in the face of guilt because you know how bad you can be, but God, or your daddy, chooses to love and forgive you anyway. It truly is, it truly is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's It's grace. You know, is God angry at us? Well, biblically speaking, he's angry at sin. He's angry at evil. He's angry at injustice. We'd better believe that. In fact, we wouldn't want a God who wasn't angry at those things. But he's not angry with us if we have abandoned ourselves to his son, Jesus Christ. Because the truth is that God's anger and wrath for our sin, for the sin in our lives, has been replaced. It's been exchanged with God's grace for us in and through his son, Jesus Christ. In God's motivation, his reason for this incredible exchange, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And what that means is that on the cross, God provided a way for our sin to be covered and taken care of, for his wrath to be appeased. And on the cross, through his son, Jesus Christ, God made a way for us to receive his grace, his mercy, and his love forever. So if you ever question, is God angry at me? I encourage you, look at the cross. Look at the cross, and you'll see your answer. You'll see your answer hanging there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus the Christ. And we come before you, and we know that you are not only a God of great love and mercy and grace, but you're also holy and just and perfect and righteous. And Lord, we, when we look at who you are and who we are, we know that we fall woefully and infinitely short of your standards. And Lord, we are amazed and humbled by the fact that, that Jesus Christ, your son, came to earth, you sent him to earth, and he took upon himself the punishment that we deserved. And because of that, we can know without a doubt 
that you aren't angry with us, but that you love us, that you, um, that you, you care for us, and that oh, even though we sin, and we do it often, Lord, that even then, your heart is one of forgiveness and grace and mercy because we have put our trust in Jesus Christ, and that has made all the difference. We ask this through Christ, O oh Lord. Amen.